The select board meeting, there have been no police reports in the time the club has been reopened. However, the select board ultimately decided to restart the four months from October to February 4th. Clouds on the increase today, but it'll be dry and mild, a high of 60 to 64. We're mostly cloudy tonight with showers developing mid to late evening, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Showers tomorrow morning, then partial afternoon sunshine, a high of 50 to 54. Sun cloud mix on Sunday and a high in the mid 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us in the studio one representative, Lindsay Sabadosa, because we have, well, really important things to talk about with her because she wrote this really amazing letter to her constituents called Only the Hard Things, which we want to talk to her about. But first, well, we're going to displace the representative because we have an interloper here in the studio with us, one Monty Belmonte. Mr. Belmonte, thank you so much for joining us, sir. We really appreciate your time and this, uh, b- being with us. I would like to ask you about something that I have heard about, that there's some kind of a walk or a stroll that you'll be doing sometime soon, and I'd appreciate it if you would enlighten us about that. It's called Steve's Stroll. It's named after <laughs> Steve Sanderson, the morning show host at 93.9 The River right across the hall from here, and it's a 43-mile walk from... Springfield to Greenfield, raising money and awareness for the Food Bank of, of Western Mass. It's the first of its kind event called Steve's Stroll, and the goal is to raise a half a million dollars, <laughs> which will translate into three million meals for our neighbors in need in the four counties of Western Mass. Okay, so I'd like you to know that while you are, you're going to be, let me back up just a second, you'll, you'll be accompanying uh, uh, Steve, Stevie on the stroll? Yes, he'll <laughs> be the second uh, day of the stroll when it's from Northampton, from right here at the studios of WHMP, and then right around the corner from Congressman McGovern's office, all the way up to Greenfield. You know, being a young person, Mr. Belmonte... Am I? If I were the 90, <laughs> I am as middle-aged as you could possibly be, and I don't know if that means young. I don't know how to put this to you. You're the youth movement around here. <laughs> <laughs> you and one Dan Torres. But, you know, the stroll, I take it, is named after a, a 1960s dance, right? Yes. Okay. Right. Just as long as we have that straight. Now... We were going to call it the mashed potato to keep in the food-related thing, but... <laughs> Okay, well, that that will twist things a bit. Listen, oh, I, there we go. I love that. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, great. Listen, uh, in all seriousness, Monty, uh, a really extraordinary event now renamed the March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Those of us, you know, who have trouble getting over well ingrained words in our head are going to call it Monty's March for the next how to put this fifty years. But so it goes. I would like to know five. $100,000. That's a big number. Really? This this community is going to raise a half a million dollars in two days? That's extraordinary. I certainly hope so, and it has happened in the past. It was interesting. It was in, um, first of all, this event started trying to raise $10,000, which was phenomenal at the time, and we hadn't really done any radio fundraising in that way 14 years ago. People have just latched onto this in such a major way hearing about the issues surrounding hunger, trying to get involved, wanting to do something silly and crazy. And it escalated up to about the um, $300,000 mark over, I don't know, maybe you know, eight, nine years. Then the pandemic hit. And people, I think, saw how close everyone is to being food insecure, that for no fault of their own, they may have lost their job. And that one paycheck that doesn't show up, all of a sudden, I don't have enough to pay all my bills 
and if I'm going to pay for my rent or my heat or my medicine or my food, I may make that devil's bargain and choose no food. And so the generosity at that time mixed with the stark realities of how close we all may be to food insecurity caused people to donate to the level of over $600,000. And we knew that that was a little bit of an anomaly. People were maybe getting some stimulus checks during that time. So we uh, mitigated our expectations and rolled it back from the 600000 to a cool half million. And that's where it's been in 2021 and 2022 and here in 2023. So a couple things. I was speaking with the executive director of the Food Bank about you. <laughs> Sorry about that. We it's <laughs> going, going, in trouble going again? behind your back. I would like you to know that on the show uh, uh, next Monday and Tuesday, we're going to have matching grants for everyone who calls in. We'll be giving the number on the air. Call in during that hour. Mention the show and your contribution to the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts to fight hunger and food insecurity in Western Massachusetts will be doubled. So that's good news. That is amazing. And I would like to ask you a big question, really seriously, about what the what the uh, national uh, – response to hunger is because i know you're you're close with congressman jim mcgovern uh we don't tell npm that i'm not close with him i'm an objective <laughs> reporter of all things mcgovern yeah, exactly you're in a very objective reporter of all things mcgovern you just happen to go on steve's stroll with him for yes. 43 miles mm -hmm. okay got it he has fought food insecurity in a major way in a significant battle in the united states congress for years and yet here we are depending on the community to somehow alleviate food insecurity in western Massachusetts, a relatively prosperous area, at least many areas of it are. And yet here we are fighting food insecurity day after day for a significant percentage of the population. Why? How? Well, I mean, historically speaking, we almost eradicated hunger in its entirety for all intents and purposes in the 1970s. Reagan administration came in and changed the perspective of many people and many voters' idea of what the role of the federal government should be. So a lot of those protections that were making sure people had enough to eat were rolled back or eliminated altogether. That's when the, the concept of food banks rose. There were a couple in the country prior to that, but that was really when the government decided charity is the way to solve the hunger issue, not through the means of the federal government. Andrew Morehouse, the executive director of the food bank, will tell you the stark reality that there is no way to food bank your way out of this problem. For every meal that the food bank provides, SNAP, which used to be food stamps, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, provides nine meals. And even with that, each meal is about $1.60 that the federal government is providing. If SNAP gets cut like it is always threatened to be. It's part of the reason why there's almost always going to be a shutdown. It's part of the huge debate going on with the farm bill. If SNAP were to be cut, the food banks of the world and the food pantries that the food bank services would have to try to fill that gap. And they do not have the capacity to jump from providing the one meal to providing all 10 that that SNAP gap fills in for people. So it could and should be done, in my opinion, if our national priorities were straight and we spent money on the things that were really important, if, if the human beings of this country are our greatest resource, why don't we do everything in our power to make take care of the human beings of this country? Especially the young ones, but yeah. every, everyone. Yeah, you can leave me alone. 
I'm old now, as Bill Newman says. <laughs> Are you too old to walk the 43 miles? You've been training? I don't think I'm too old to walk the 43 miles yet. If Congressman McGovern does it, then I'm like, that guy's ancient, so. <laughs> no. Uh, well, Jim, I, Jim McGovern, I, this, is, this is your friend and objective reporter, Monty Belmonte. Who, just call it like I see him now that I'm a <laughs> newsman. We'll welcome him on the show next time. It's now the ancient Congressman yes. Jim McGovern. No, yeah, I think you say I'm, that, Bill. I feel up to it. I think so. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of more martial arts on a regular basis. So I'm overall more fit than usual. I'm getting more sleep now that I don't do the morning show, and <laughs> I've done a couple of really long walks to get ready for this. Great, Monty Belmonte. We will be speaking with you live from the road on Steve Stroll, formerly known as Monty's March, Monday and Tuesday. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for everything that you do, Monty. I love you guys, and I listen every day on my drive to work. <laughs> And we'll be right back with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you exploring the next step for you or a loved one? Join the vibrant, welcoming Rockridge Retirement Community. Moving to Rockridge is a chance to make new friends, live in bright, spacious apartments, enjoy farm-to-table food, activities, and trips to downtown Northampton and other fun places. Sign on before November 30th and get 30 days free and a waiver of the community fee. For more information, call 413-586-2902 or visit rockridgema.org. Rockridge Community, with everything that matters. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We welcome back to our show, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Representative Sabadosa, I'm so pleased you could be with us today because I looked at the papers this morning and said, the Massachusetts legislature did what? Actually, I didn't say that. I said the Massachusetts legislature didn't do what? And, well, the Massachusetts legislature didn't pass a supplemental budget before it went home 
for the end of this session, which was yesterday, as I understand it. And there's a supplemental budget that, well, is in limbo that has vital needs addressed in it, and it's not the law, and the money isn't there. So help us understand what's going on, and then we'll get to why. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I would say uh, Wednesday of this week was the end of formal session for uh, this year. So, so from, what that so, means... So I no longer have to re- address you as Representative Sabadosa, ma'am. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay, got it. The end of the formal session. Okay. So what that means is that um, we won't be convening for, uh, for roll call votes until the start of January and in 2024. But that doesn't mean that the legislature has gone home. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Uh, we are still very much working. We are just not meeting for roll call votes. And the reason we're not doing that is it's part of the rules and, and how this works. We Every session is two years, but that means we have two annual sessions. So not trying to confuse people at home, but do want to make sure that you understand this doesn't mean that we're just packed up our bags and we'll be back in January. So the supplemental budget. Well, first, what is a supplemental budget? A supplemental budget in this case is the closeout budget. So how we finish paying for anything that might be outstanding for this year. So literally that last bill that crosses the finish line that says this is all the funding and all the money that we're going to spend um, from now until January 1st when we will be back in and could potentially pass other budgets if necessary because supplemental budgets are very, very common things. There are all kinds of issues that arise during the fiscal year that we can't take care of back in April. So we have to make sure we're always meeting our obligations. States, unlike the federal government, have to have balanced budgets, and that's why these bills are important. Okay, that's actually quite clear. Try this one. Explain what an informal session is and how it works. So an informal session is something that... Everyone, no, no, no ties, uh, uh, no skirts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, an informal session is a session that has to occur by state constitution every 72 hours. You do not need the full body there. You don't need a, a quorum. So you don't need 81 members present in order to have that session. In the State House in of Representatives. State, in, the, in the general court, you do not need a quorum. And we pass things by voice votes. So a lot of times in informal sessions, if you watch them, and they're really interesting to watch if you kind of like a political process, you'll see bills moving through committees. That's one of the really important reasons that they occur. A bill that goes from a committee to Ways and Means needs to pass through an informal session in order to get the approval to move to its next step. So that's part of what happens at informal sessions. But informal sessions can also include passage of bills that are non-controversial. So with the supplemental budget, the supplemental budget is generally a more controversial bill. People have opinions about how we spend money. This supplemental budget contains a lot of moving pieces, probably more than most supplemental budgets. Including the one for unhoused persons in Massachusetts, which is a large number and a critical issue facing the Commonwealth. What about people who have and families that have no place to live? Yes. So this is the emergency emergency assistance funds, and that's for shelter. So any family in Massachusetts that is unhoused has the right to shelter. We are a right to shelter state. We have been a right to shelter state for 40 years. And I believe the Speaker of the House, when he says we are going to continue to be a right to shelter state because those are the values of our state and we are going to stick by them. 
it is expensive to be a right to shelter state. And it is particularly expensive right now when we have a lot of people coming into Massachusetts. And so in response to to the the shelter crisis that we're having, there is simply no room anywhere. Um, The governor has asked for more money in order to to pay for all of that. She's asked for $250 million. And the House... Can we stop there for one second? $250 million, which is about a tenth of the total supplemental budget, which I think is $2.5 billion. Yep. We're talking about real money here. We are talking about very, very real money, yes. And, and to be very fair, the amount she's asking for right now, um, which she will need in about three weeks when the current funding runs out, um, is not going to be enough you know, to move into the future. It's going to be enough for a short period of time, and then we're going to have to reassess. One of the things that the House has really drawn a firm line on, though, is that we don't want people sleeping on the streets. We don't want to come downtown and see our parks full of people. We don't want people filling up the emergency rooms because it is freezing in the winter and they have nowhere to sleep. It's also boiling in the summer and too hot to sleep outside, but we haven't grappled with that yet as a state. We don't want people in our airports, and these are all things that happen when people have nowhere else to go. So the House has said to the governor, we are happy to give you this money. However, you are telling us the shelters are full. We need you to guarantee that you are going to set up overflow shelters for people so that they are not just sleeping outside. And that is part of the bill that the House passed. Yes. Okay. But the Senate did not. No. And that is one of the points of contention. So the House is saying we very much need a plan. And the Senate is, I think, probably siding a bit more with the governor and saying the governor needs flexibility to respond. I would argue, I'm a member of the House, so there's that, but I would argue that House members, we represent smaller districts. We're just closer to the ground. That's part of what our job is. Senators have much larger districts. It's much harder for them to get to every one of their communities. When there's a crisis on the ground, your representative generally is there and sees it. And when you talk to House members who have emergency shelters in their district, they are seeing crisis on the ground. And so the idea of just saying, we're going to trust you to do what's right, is a little hard at this point. We want some guarantee that that shelter is going to be stood up and it's going to be stood up quickly because it is November. I want to come back to this, but before we lose this thread, Mm -hmm. I want to go back to this question of an informal session Yes, because there's an aspect of it that is going to be, I think, very important this time because in informal session... There has to be a unanimous voice vote, but it has to be unanimous. And if one member of the House says, I object, that bill does not pass. That is true. And so in this instance, because a deal was not reached on the supplemental budget by um, midnight of of well, I guess technically midnight of Thursday, but midnight on Wednesday, um, a conference committee was formed. And the part of the reason that that happened is when a conference committee, which is members of the House, members of the Senate, that come together. Three of each. Three of each. They and come together to make the deal. They issue a conference committee report. That report cannot be amended. It is an up and down vote. You have the opportunity to say yes or no, but that's it. And that's the workaround for any one member can object because, yes, yes, any one member can object, but it is always, post the conference committee, an up or down vote, and 
there's not a ch- no, there's no opportunity for amendments, which is what could sink a bill. Absolutely, and there's no yeah, and there's no ability for amendments, and at that point, it's difficult for anyone to object because everyone has a really vested interest in this bill passing. We've talked about the emergency assistance funding, but there are so many other components to this bill. Um, there are, and I've received I think hundreds of emails at this point, uh, the f- state funding to meet contractual obligations. So our state has a lot of public service members. They negotiate contracts with their employer, some entity of the Commonwealth and their union. And then the state is responsible for funding those contracts. And in the budget so far, there are, we're going to talk to Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association about this later in the show. As I understand it, there are some 50 state contracts. No, there are over 90. Over 90 state yes. contracts. I'm sure Max would have corrected me on that, too, um, that are unfunded at Absolutely. this point. Right. And, and I mean, the, the message that I've been sharing with constituents, I, I have to say, like, just on a very personal level, to be in chamber that late at night, it was well after midnight, and to hear we can't come up with a deal, we're recessing, was just heartbreaking. Because every let I'm every legislator has heard from their constituents. But this is the thing that we have been saying: you have to fund these contracts. We want these contracts done. I personally been calling House Ways and Means. I feel like on a daily basis to say, if we do nothing else, can we just immediately address this need? And to hear that we're not going to do that, and then to have to come home and tell people, I'm sorry, you have to wait longer, is probably one of the worst things. Representative Sabadosa, go back to where the disagreement is. The House has said that the governor has to set up emergency temporary housing. Yes. The Senate has said, no, no, we will not tell the governor how to address the problem. We'll give the governor the money but not impose our will on the executive branch. All right. How does that get resolved? And I guess I'm asking you to uh, prognosticate a bit. What what does the uh, committee do uh, to resolve this? By the way, has the Senate passed a bill, so we're reconciling two bills, or the Senate has the Senate has the Senate it. has passed its own bill, and the House has passed its own okay, bill. And so therefore, this is truly a reconciliation. Recon- okay, so the, the, uh, the committee has to meet to reconcile the bills, which are irreconcilable because they're just plain different on this. But there has to be some meeting of the minds. Yep. Some thoughts on how this gets resolved. There are always other pieces of the bill, right? So, I mean, some other components of it, I think a non-controversial one is we're, we're setting up um, mechanisms to negotiate the transmission line for hydro coming down from Quebec. And then there's a football stadium or a, a soccer stadium, I guess oh. I should say. Something I did not know I was supposed to be worried about. But there <laughs> I was reading the Globe saying, oh, my God, I have to worry about a soccer stadium because – Uh, Robert Kraft has an interest in it, as I understand. Yes, and the Senate put in um, the soccer stadium, and there is some dispute about how that should look exactly, whether they should be allowed to have concerts. There's some competition issues. You have uh, people in Boston very upset about this. So uh, all that said, there are multiple levers of negotiation 
Um, I believe that they will be able to come to an agreement. I mean, we've had both the chair of House Ways and Means and Senate Ways and Means say, we're, we're going to come to an agreement. This will happen. This will happen in informal, and it will happen quickly. Uh, closing out the budget is actually extremely important for the Commonwealth, so I do have faith that it will happen quickly. But I bring up the soccer stadium only to say there are levers of negotiation, and I believe the sides have been talking. I don't think they stopped talking at midnight. I think they've gone right on through. And in fact, I believe that the committee is scheduled to meet on Monday. I don't know that the committee is scheduled to meet on Monday. There will be an informal session on Monday. Um, You know, I think people sometimes think that what happens with these committees is that they uh, go behind some gilded doors and make big, you know, conversations and discussions and deals. At the end of the day, it's 2023, people are texting and calling each other. They might hop on a Zoom, but those conversations are, are very, very, very ongoing um, and generally concern primarily the, the chairs of the conference committee. We are speaking with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. We'll be back with more right after this. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. South Hadley High School will be hiring a second assistant principal after voters approved funding at a special town meeting. The meeting was held after the school district lobbied for the funds following several altercations in the school this fall. The school committee voted to amend the budget and use $61,000 for the position from excess state aid. Rep. Natalie Blay is filing a bill that would allow police and firefighters to work in public safety roles until the age of 72. Currently, emergency service personnel cannot work past the age of 65 without filing a home rule petition. The act would not take effect until it has been adopted by a vote of the local city or town. Massachusetts legislators are considering a bill that would make Medicare for all a reality. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa filed the bill with Senator Jamie Eldridge, who testified in favor of the bill before the Joint Committee on Health Care Financing this week. Passing Medicare for All is the biggest action we can take to ensure that every person has great quality health care and dramatically improve the quality of life for all Massachusetts residents. The bill would establish a single-payer health care system funded by tax dollars and dramatically change the way that Massachusetts residents receive and pay for health care. It would effectively eliminate for-profit private health insurance companies, more, more comprehensively regulate nonprofit health care insurance and providers, and provide direct reimbursement to health care providers from the government. The Medicare for All bill would establish a Massachusetts health care trust with a 29-member board of trustees that would plan and oversee the transition to a single-payer health care system. Clouds on the increase today, but it'll be dry and mild, a high of 60 to 64. We're mostly cloudy tonight with showers developing mid to late evening, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Showers tomorrow morning, then partial afternoon sunshine, a high of 50 to 54. Sun cloud mix on Sunday and a high in the mid 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, 
we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C., we are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. Where is your pain? In your knees? Hips? Your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer. And don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. I suppose it would not be a show with Lindsay Sabadosa, the representative, unless we asked her this compelling question that we've often posed. <laughs> what are the municipalities in your district? Who do you represent? So the city of Northampton, the towns of Chesterfield, Cummington, Hatfield, Goshen, Plainfield, West Hampton, Worthington, and Williamsburg. And I still didn't get them in alphabetical order. Those no, you didn't. You always, always Goshen and Haydenville, you yeah. messed up in alphabetical order. Hatfield. Hatfield. And, I know. mean, Haydenville is part of Williamsburg. Yes. Yes, Hatfield. Okay. I'm glad we have resolved that. Here's something I wanted to ask you about. And I've been mean, really uh, been meaning to ask you about this since I received your constituent letter, uh, which I was really uh, thought was brilliant. It really did. Um, and you titled it Only the Hard Things. And in a show where we have been talking about what the legislature didn't accomplish, specifically the supplemental, the critically needed supplemental budget, you were talking about what the legislature was, in fact, spending its time and attention on. And I thought that was really both edifying and interesting, and, and I learned a lot from it. So I was wondering if you'd be kind enough to share the, at least the outline of what you said in that letter to your constituents, of which I am one. <laughs> well, I, I think it's been a little bit of a hard session because in, in prior sessions, you know, we, we've, I think, passed legislation a little bit faster. There's been sort of those big bills that people focus on, you know, the Student Opportunity Act, the Roe Act, the, the roadmap, the 2025, 2050 roadmap, and people sort of rally around those bills. And I know as a legislature, there, as a legislator, you get like, all the postcards and there's the rallies and, and that movement. And this session has been really different in that I'm not sure there is the bill that people have rallied around. But I think 
it's important for people to also know that that doesn't mean we're not doing things. I think what we're trying to grapple with this session are some of the really harder and insidious problems in the Commonwealth. And that is really not as glamorous um, as the the big bills that can get that sort of showy response. But it's it's important work. It's work that's going to affect all of us. And in the newsletter, I certainly talked about, about the migrant crisis and the emergency assistance. And uh, we've talked about, uh, you know, the different taxes, which, you know, taxes are not, taxes are certainly not fun. No one likes paying them. No one probably likes reading about them. But they do affect the Commonwealth as a whole, what we are able to afford, our competitiveness, and these really hard issues of a state that is, I I would argue, a state that's on the precipice. When we're a state that's getting older, I'll just point out, you know, earlier, people were joking with Monty saying that he was the young person in the room. And in Massachusetts, being in your 40s has often made you the young person in the room. I'm assuming Monty's still in his 40s, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, But but that's a problem for a state. It's a problem for the future of our our state. It's a problem (laughs) because people are deciding not to have children because they can't afford them. They can't find housing. And so all of these bills are trying to tackle that. I mean, just yesterday, we found out that it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars to just repair the T in Boston because the state of repair has been pushed off for so long. We have to figure out solutions. Yeah, there's nothing quite as sexy as let's tackle deferred maintenance. I mean, that gets people in the street. But without the maintenance, you don't have a transportation system. Exactly. And then it it begs the bigger questions, too, right? Like, we also care about Western Massachusetts. We've been talking about building this damn train and making sure that people are connected. And yet, all of a sudden, Boston's like, wait, I'm sorry, now now we need need 40 billion again. Those are hard things to tackle, but that's what the legislature is doing this session. And so it is not as as glamorous as we might hope or, or rallying as people like, but that's the work that we're going to have to do, unfortunately. And we hope that we'll find solutions that encourage people to, to live in our state, to stay in our state, um, and afford to be able to, to do those things. Other big issues that you'd say the legislature has, in fact, been working on? I think that the the biggest issues that we have been trying to tackle are economic, really. And um, unfortunately, we are at a place where we're just not sure where our finances are going. Um, you know, if you if you watch the economic outlook for the state, we are the only state in New England that has not been hitting our benchmarks. Our revenues are lower than we expected by a, about $350 million. Not hitting our benchmarks mean we're not collecting as much money in taxes as was projected that we would. Yes, although I... I want to say there's some nuance to that. So it's not like we're just not collecting what, what we're getting in income taxes is lower. Or what we're getting in capital gains is lower. It's every month it's different. Sometimes sales are a little bit lower. Sometimes it's capital gains. And we're trying to figure out why that's happening and why it's happening here as opposed to the other states that are surrounding us. Are people leaving to live in New Hampshire or Rhode Island because it might just be that little bit cheaper? And that's what we need to, to really understand. The data is not showing that. I'm just, just opining. But we are trying to figure out how we address those big issues. And again, not very sexy, but important. Yeah. Buzz, you had a question about big issues. I sure do. Representative Sabadoso. So speaking of financing, the healthcare financing yes. system in the context of the medical providing system that we have in this country, you've been talking about equitable healthcare delivery for a very long time. And you, together with Jamie Eldridge, Senator Eldridge, yes. and others, Adam Gomez, 
You're sponsoring a bill to provide Medicare for all. I'd yes. love to hear more about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the legislation is certainly not a new idea, and it's definitely one I've talked about on this show before. But I do think that it becomes more and more critical. I mean, we I'm on the Healthcare Financing Committee. I'm very proud to be on that committee. We, again, tackle only the most difficult and heartbreaking of issues. But I think where it comes back to every single time is it's like a gigantic balloon the legislature can push in and ask for pharmaceutical drug prices to be lowered, right? But it's a balloon, so something's going to pop on the other side. Those costs are going to appear elsewhere, and the consumers are the one holding the balloon, <laughs> and they're the ones that are paying these increased costs, or they're deciding not to get health care because they can't afford those increased costs. And so we have to come up with something that brings all of that down. I mean, we were in a meeting a few weeks ago with um, with a, a hospital in the state, and they were talking about their economic outlook, and they were showing the charts of what specialties or what areas make money. I mean, it's almost nothing. We, we see maternal health closed across the state. We see pediatric health closed. We see behavioral health closed. They're losing money in all of those areas, and they're making money, you know, and, and cancer, and that's certainly not, I mean, in important Certain areas. surgeries. Certain surgeries, sure, but but at the same time, like these are not the areas where we only want healthcare to focus, right? We want the preventative care before we need surgery and cancer treatment, and those are not our, our hospitals can't sustain that. Our, our healthcare facilities can't sustain that. They can't keep them open unless there's a way for them to at least break even. And what we're hearing from our hospitals and our providers is these are common goods. We need them to be there, but they don't know how they're going to sustain that. And an executive the other day said, well, until we actually have a Medicare for all system, I don't know how we solve this mm -hmm. because we have hospitals um, that are charging, that are getting much more back from private payers and then other hospitals that are getting less. And we're all trying to balance that. But at the, at the end of the day, we haven't created a threshold. We haven't created a floor to hold all of this up. So I think the legislation, you know, it, it really, it creates a state trust. It changes the way we pay for health care so people would pay into the trust and the trust would pay providers directly. So it cuts out a lot of the, the middle. It cuts out the insurance pieces so that people can just access care. I know that there are many who think that's a revolutionary idea, but at the end of the day, I don't know what else we can really rely on if our health care system is is going to be repaired. Well, I, I know we, you know, we talk about a more perfect union, but this morning you're talking about the efforts yourself and your colleagues to provide shelter, to provide food, yep. to provide medical care. Oh, we need to be a far more perfect union. We do, yes. Representative Sabadosa, I don't mean to be uh, popping the balloon you were talk just talking about, but as a very practical matter, Medicare for All has been a topic for a long time. Yes. Bills have been introduced in the legislature calling for Medicare for All for a long time. And in terms of popping balloons, I hate to be the one to do it, but Medicare for All, I suspect, is not passing the Massachusetts legislature this year. It's just not. No, I would agree with you. But I also think that, you know, they, don't they talk about the, the trash bin of ideas when it comes to policy, that there really is no new idea anymore. We just put everything sort of into this bucket and we pull out the ideas when they're necessary. I would argue yes. that much like our shelter system, there is going to be a moment where there's a breaking point and we're going to have to do something. And it's going to be upon us in the not too distant exactly. future because this health care system 
is not sustainable as it is. And so a lot of times with legislation, I like to say, you know, we, do, we don't, every bill that we write is not going to pass that session, unfortunately. It'd be great if it did. But um, we put our stake in the sand and we say, this is where I think we should be having the conversation. This bill is very much that. And if you were able to turn into the hearing, we had about 75 people come in and talk about just how broken the system is. And one person come in and say, no, I think this is a bad idea. He worked for a health insurance uh, plan. And, you know, really, he didn't offer a solution. He just said, I don't think this one is it. So we'll get there. Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, on that positive note, we'll leave it. Thank you so very much. Thanks for your time every month. Really appreciate you coming in. Of course. Thank you. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Crepes Tea House releases certificates for their Eastern European restaurant and tea house in Southwick, Massachusetts. Crepes Tea House, serving made-from-scratch cuisine with an old-world flair. Dozens of sweet and savory offerings for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, along with over 100 different types of teas to try. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Crepes Tea House in Southwick, Mass., available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the show, we think we will have with us very soon, Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Indeed, Max is with us. Thanks so much, Max Page. Uh, let's start, if we could, by your picking up the story we were talking about last week on this segment. Uh, what's happening with the teacher strike that you were telling us about? And we had a uh, one of the union leadership uh, uh, members on the show. What's with what's with the strike? Well, it's over. So Julian DeGloria, the first vice president of the Andover Education Association, which represent about, represents about 850 um, 
teachers and what are called instructional assistants or paraprofessionals, we might say, uh, went on strike Friday, last Friday, and they um, solved their strike this past um, Tuesday night. What does that tell us again about the effectiveness of strikes and the importance of teachers, in fact, employing that as a means of achieving a contract when month after month after month after month after month after month after month has not achieved a contract? What's the lesson here? Well, Bill, I mean, one of the lessons is we need to pass um, the strike legislation that the MTA has put forward, and that would be, and there was a big hearing of that um, about a month ago, that would allow for striking by public sector workers after six months. Just so listeners know, striking is illegal in Massachusetts for public sector workers, um, that is municipal as well as state workers. Um, look, they bargained for 28 sessions from January of 2023 all the way through this fall, made almost no progress. Um, the, the members who never, these are members have never been on strike. They never intended, wanted to do that. They decided they had to do something to move these negotiations along. And so what happened? They took a, a vote on last Thursday, 95% of their members voted yes. And they went on strike on Friday. And guess what? Bargaining started immediately and productively Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they were very close to a deal except for, you know, there's some there are issues around pay, um, but it moved like bargaining is supposed to do back and forth and really exchanging ideas. They resolved a lot of things. And I will say the result of the contract is one of the most powerful contracts we've seen in a while. We all talk about paraprofessionals as so invaluable, crucial. They are, but they are paid poverty wages. Starting salary was $25,000 in um, uh, in Andover. That starting salary in a couple of years will be $40,000. Still not a big salary, but it is advancing toward a true living wage for um, uh, educators who work with some of our most vulnerable students. So they earned a massive gain. They also did something um, people should know that the paid family medical leave policy that is enjoyed by everyone in the state except for municipal workers. It does not apply to municipal workers. In fact, and as, as people may know, most of our, our um, educators, two-thirds are women, and uh, they have no parent paid parental leave. And at the press conference announcing this settlement, there was an, uh, a paraprofessional instructional assistant there who's having twins today by cesarean. Bef the day before the, the contract was concluded, she would have zero paid parental leave. Now she has eight weeks paid by the district and can take more um, of her own sick time. So that's a very, very tangible, meaningful change that they want. So the bottom line is, Members do not intend, do not want to go on strike, but they, after nine months, they said enough is enough, and that's what they did. Max, one last question on this topic before we turn to the failure of the state legislature to fund contracts. I'd like to know, I think listeners will pick up on your having said what we all know, I think, which is that there is no right to strike in Massachusetts for public employees, given that and that these educators did go on strike, was there any ramifications because of the strike itself in view of the law? 
Well, yes. I mean, the, the Department of Labor Relations, which, um, you know, went, you know, as I've said on this show before, nothing moves faster in state government than does the, the Commonwealth Employment Relations Board, which is part of the Department of Labor, which will meet within an hour if there is um, a claim by a district, a school district, that there's a strike happening. So they acted quickly, declared there was a strike. They went to court and actually the, the local has to pay a, already did pay a $50,000 fine from the state for doing this. And that's painful to a local that does not have a lot of money, but they decided they would, if they needed to, they would pay those, they, that, that, those back over whenever they had to, but that it was important enough to follow through on the strike. Let's turn to the question that we were just speaking about with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, the failure of the legislature to fund agreed upon contracts. Tell us the status of that, who's affected, how many people, and what's next? So um, I, I, don't, I don't need to yell and scream on the radio. I could just, but I wanna convey how furious our members are, the 18,000 public higher education members in the Massachusetts Teachers Association are about this. There are, all, there are 95 contracts bottled up in this for some 50 or 60,000 state workers who have been, who duly negotiated their contracts back in May um, and they've been sitting there and are in a football of back and forth in this, what I've called a dysfunctional game between the two houses. So it's a lot of people who've been waiting a lot of time. I will say our community college staff and faculty at Holyoke and at Greenfield and elsewhere have been not had a raise since June of 20. 20. Three years they've been waiting for this finally to get funded. So it is really um, beyond time and the legislature has to get it done. We are showing up on Monday, the AFL-CAO and its members will be showing up in the galleries at the State House and then out front for a press conference at noon on Monday to say, get this done. And I want to say, get this done as well as shelter for migrants. Remember, we do not want just the contracts funded. We want to also make sure that the money gets allocated so that people have shelter as um, as Thanksgiving and Christmas approach. Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Could you in a minute explain to our listeners how these contracts manage to be kept in limbo all this time? And I preface that by saying there's negotiations, there's negotiations, there's back and forth, and eventually uh, a bargaining unit and a agency of the Commonwealth comes to an agreement, and then there's this line that's stuck in at the end, subject to appropriations. Tell, tell us how that works. Yes, that's right. So this is very different than the way municipal contracts work, which is essentially when they're all done, they're simply funded. It's already been accounted for in the budget. The way uh, state contracts work is they have to be negotiated. So I am an employee of the University of Massachusetts, um, the University of Massachusetts reaches an agreement with my union. Those then have to go to the governor, who then has to transmit them to the legislature, and then the legislature has to fund them. And while that seems like, oh, that shouldn't be hard, you can do that in a week, it has tended to take months and months, sometimes years, for this process to work. And contracts, which are almost always eventually, not always, but almost always funded eventually, just are sit there for months as after members have expected to get um, their their 
cost of living increases. And it's just a disrespectful system and it's a convoluted system and it waits, wastes everyone's time. Uh, MTA President Max Page, in the minute and a half we have left, um, the MCCC, the Massachusetts Community College Council, uh, that is an unfunded contract and something important just happened. Could you tell us about that? Yes, it seems in very rapid fashion, almost all, I think it's up to 13 now, of the community college presidents have said, you know what, enough is enough. We are actually going to cross our fingers and expect that the this legislature will eventually provide the money, but we, the colleges, are going to issue those cost of living increases, including the retroactive pay, so that people get them in their paychecks before the holiday season. And that's to their credit. Um, that does not absolve the legislature from doing their jobs, which is what we're going to the state house on Monday to do. But that is an important statement um, and action by the community college presidents. It's coming out of their budget, and that includes Greenfield Community College and Holyoke Community College. And to their credit, they're funding these cost of living increases. Yes. What happens? What, what happens Monday, Max? Monday, the AFL-CIO and members, we are gathering the state house for a press conference at noon. We're asking legislators to be in the building and to show up in solidarity. Legislators have to push their leadership, their, the Senate president and the Speaker of the House, to get this done before Thanksgiving for the migrants, for the, our contracts, and for everything else that is in this supplemental budget. Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. He is with us weekly. Max, we really appreciate your time, your insights, your explanations, really invaluable service to our community, to the members, and to all the people of the Commonwealth. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Buzz. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And we are really graced every month uh, with uh, our good friend who is always fighting the good fight, uh, the executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, Claire Higgins. Thank you for joining us this month, Claire. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We have been hearing a lot about shelter in Massachusetts. We've been hearing about the governor's uh, a supplemental budget and um, other ways of housing those people as winter approaches. Um, 
uh, and the cold and uh, the other problems it brings, uh, finding shelter for people who need it. You and your agency, Community Action, Pioneer Valley, are constantly dealing with the needs of uh, for shelter in this region. Can you give us sort of an update of your thoughts about yeah, it? Yeah, uh, so I, the sheltering discussion is important, but the other part of the discussion that's important is housing production. So we don't ro operate shelter. We, s we help, if somebody comes to us, we help connect them with the resources. Now, of course, there's um, burdens on the shelter system that haven't been seen in, in many, many years. So, and, and why is that, right? Like, why is it that in this state that there isn't housing available for, for low-income workers? In fact, across the country, why is it that there's not housing available for, for low-income low-income people, you know, I think... We're not just talking about immigrants, not to minimize that need. Uh, uh, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we've had a shelter system for a very long time for families, filled with families, some with, with people who are working and very uh, uh, often, not always, uh, that can't find housing in the market, right? And I, when I was, uh, I don't know, in my 30s, there was a wave of homelessness in the early 80s, you might remember who was president then. Um, and there were shelters, you know, Jesse's house and others where people were. And then at that time, they moved people onto vouchers and into private market housing because, because the rents were affordable and the voucher paid the cost. Now there are no vouchers to be had. And the rents, don't, the, if you have a voucher, it's very difficult to find an apartment at the up the allowed rent on the voucher. And in addition, there's the burden of, of um, the, the, the uh, disconnect between people who say they care about housing, but they don't want it built next to them, mm. right? So how do we think about all that if we want to be a healthy state? In Massachusetts, we're pretty much a declining population state. You know, I think we held steady, but it's not because of Western Mass. Western Mass absolutely has declining population. If we want to be healthy as a region, we better make room here for families. And aging population. And, uh, right. We're an aging population with fewer children, which is a, it means that the school systems are worried, much more worried about how they're going to keep their doors open because the children aren't there in the way they were. Young families, if they took a look around, take a look around, where... Where can they buy a house? Right? That they can afford. That they can afford. Even if they can the find an empty one. At, at the pay that they're making. So there's a, it's, a, it's a real tangle here of, you know, and I'll, I'll give the governor credit. She's put out a really good bond bill that has money for lots of um, different ways to approach the housing crisis. But really, housing is built in local communities. So how do you improve the inventory of affordable housing? So... Uh, I think one of the ways is by passing things like the bond bill here because um, it, it's one of the important tools for building housing. Um, the, uh, the federal in, uh, uh, tax credits that help pay housing take a long time to get, and it's still a complicated housing um, proposition. That bond bill will help fill the gaps in that. But I also think it comes down to zoning and and thinking about opening up our communities to housing in a different way. I love that you, you, you couch it as um, a web, because 
Part of the story, I mean, we all know, we've heard the story, we've talked about it on the show, we, of local people in my town, in the hill towns mm -hmm. around here, who uh, their kids really want to stay around here, and they don't know how to make it happen because they can't find a house, they can't find a job that can support the housing costs to purchase a new house or rent a, a good housing situation. And uh, it is a web. It's, it, it has to do with the employment situation. It has to do with the housing situation. And uh, it's intractable. Dan, you? Well, actually, thoughts? I had a, a question here. Um, what does a bond bill mean? Is that just that's the right. government? Does yeah. the government incur debt and uh, they can stimulate development? I, I just yeah, wanted to get an understanding. Question. So, yeah, government financing is a combination of the you know, direct expenditures, right, to do things like child care or, or others. Uh, things like that around, you know, the the, the uh, states, the road, people building, you know, uh, taking care of the roads and all that kind of stuff is the direct expenditure. And then there's the capital investment side of the equation, which is building roads, re building bridges, repairing bridges, and building housing. So, um, and we don't build a lot of public housing um, anymore. But there is some money in this new bond bill to repair the housing we have. There was an appalling statistic that across the state, 4,000 public housing units are vacant because they need repairs, or there may be other reasons, but 4,000 units of public housing, which is the housing for the lowest people, lowest income people. Um, so that borrowing, which is paid out over many years, right, which is the way we tend to do a capital investment, Accrues, that benefit accrues back to the community because there's new housing mm. or improved housing for people to grow and thrive in that community. Well, just a quick follow-up, Buzz, if I may. Um, I mean, I, I would think this would make a lot of sense. Two ideas, quickly. Uh, the state owns a lot of land. Right. I heard the governor talk about that land that's already been maybe deforested to be expand the production of housing availability there. But also there are a lot of rural towns that would love to have people move in. And if the incentive was, hey, you maybe own a really small home, a starter home, and yes, you'll live in a small town, but you know, it's at least affordable for you given the salaries. So I, I don't understand why that doesn't make sense at the state level. That, I think it does make sense at the state level. Um, and, but you're, you, because it's common sense, you saw it, right? And uh, so in Northampton, for instance, the state property the state, state hospital now has hundreds of units of housing, both affordable and, and market rate housing there. That was the state in concert with the municipality putting together a plan and then finding developers to come in and do the work to, to create that housing. Took many years. Mm. None of this is quick, right? Yeah. Um, it's going to happen in Wilson's, it, I think. There's going to be a... In downtown <laughs> Greenfield, Wilson's is going to have a mix of affordable and market rates up uh, units upstairs, which is great for a downtown. Now, you said it's going to take a long time. Is that because of regulation or lack of money That's or a both? Re a really good question. Money is a key piece, and so finding the money to do the cleanup at the state hospital and then finding, and then that kind of building just takes time because you're kind of moving your way across a big parcel. But there's units started opening there relatively early after the process began. So I think the so. Other, well, I'm sorry. Can I, I was just going to say the other thing about bonding, your question, Dan, about bonding, it, my understanding is that because of our, we have a constitutional amendment. Uh, part of our state constitution says that we can't, uh, borrow money. We can't have bonds that, that exceed ten percent of our overall right. budget. Right. Our overall budget now being about fifty-six billion dollars. Right. So that means five, five and a half billion dollars is the maximum that we could borrow in a given year. And there's so many competing. Give me, give me, and, give me. And and that's right. But some of those are are 
some of those give me, give me, give me have separate bonding authority outside of that, you know, outside of that piece of state government. I think the university is an example of that. But the second thing you talked about was rural communities and how to develop housing in rural communities. I think rural communities are very interested in keeping people in them and, and having those communities thrive. Uh, but the challenges are different. Usually when you get state money or federal money, they want you, you know, they want you to put more units on the property than is sometimes feasible in a uh, small community. You know, you have to, it, paving a road is really expensive, <laughs> bringing a driveway in, get getting hooked up to a water source or figuring out where the water source is if there's no public water. All that kind of stuff has to be figured out. Um, the folks at the um, Rural Development Inc., which is a nonprofit arm of the Franklin County um, uh, Housing and Redevelopment Authority, just opened a beautiful a senior housing uh, site in Sunderland took a number of years, right? They're, they're, they have other things in the pipeline, but all of them take time. But this, is a, this investment through the governor's bond bill is really important to think about that, you know, uh, supporting that kind of thing over time, right? Usually those bills are for five years, and then you go out and do another one. But, the, you know, Habitat for Humanity has built housing that, we, you know, some of my employees, at, or our employees at Community Action are living in Habitat houses that they built, that they work to build. That's an a, a, a organization that does great work one by one, right? And sometimes one by one feels like too little, but for that family, it's everything. So it's a combination of the big picture, bond bill, federal, think about the federal government in a and how can we make them more responsive to this? State government, bond bill, local government, what's the zoning look like? How, how can people build in that community? How do, what does that look like, right? If you've got large lot zoning, you're not going to have affordable housing. So right? Executive Director Claire Higgins of uh, Community Action of Pioneer Valley, it, the entire mission of your agency is uh, to make society more equitable. For those people who, who uh, deserve better housing, better child care, um, and a lot of other things I'm not mentioning, what are you doing in the housing arena as a community action so agency? So we, we have a small piece in terms of uh, working with the, the continuum of care that works in the homelessness arena, and we're doing work at the um, with the city on their resilience hub, which is also in the realm of working with people who are unhoused. Um, that you know, that's a whole different conversation for a different day. But we also are doing work um, through our both our energy programs and our um, and a grant we have with HUD, doing home repair so that people can stay in their home with HUD, and then doing energy efficiency. HUD is housing, housing and urban development, which is Thank very you. interesting name because housing is not just an urban issue, right? I guess that and makes it separate, but even so. There is uh, this rural development that has to happen too, but, but so we've, we're doing home repairs in partnership with LifePath uh, throughout Hampshire and Franklin County for eligible seniors, which allows them to stay in their home. Many seniors are cost burdened by their homes, so we don't want them to lose them if it's in a place where they can afford it. The second thing is energy and in, investments in energy systems in people's home if they're on our fuel assistance program. Even as a renter, there is some access to doing energy efficiency and energy efficiency upgrades. If you can save money on your fuel, it opens up money to spend on other things. And then the other thing I just want to note about Franklin and Hampshire County, and I think I mentioned this before, about 66% of the people that we serve through fuel assistance are actually on delivered fuels, mm. not um, 
gas or electric. So their costs fluctuate more widely, and they have no protection from shutoff. So if we can help them with some efficiency, change out the boiler, burner, or whatever. Claire Higgins, does Massachusetts have legal protections for people so that they won't have their heating yes. shut off, yes. cut off yes. during cold weather? Yes. I, I think that's a piece of this puzzle. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So if you're, uh, there's a couple of categories that are, if there's a child, there's having to do with the age of young children and seniors that you're protected. And if you're a low income person, you can have yourself be protected as well. So, and people can go to our website and we explain the Community Action Pioneer Valley website. Um, and, and it will explain exactly how those low income. You're still going to owe protection. the money. You, you owe the money. But I'm just going to say this too. If you, if you have, if you have an electric bill or a gas bill, and even if you're protected from shutoff, just send them a little bit of money every month. Just send them a little bit of money, and and that way you're, you know, you're kind of letting them know you haven't forgotten about them. <laughs> and uh, and then sometimes fuel assistance doesn't pay all of your bills, so that's also helpful to have done that. We've discussed this with you before, but I want listeners to really know what what. Community Action, our Community Action Agency, which is so important to so many people in this region, we have a lot of community action agencies throughout the country. You're just coming back from Washington, D.C. There was a meeting of countrywide mm -hmm. representatives. Could you tell us about the community action system in this country? So the history of community action, it, it comes out of the history of the war on poverty, uh, which was sort of, and the, war, the Lyndon Johnson war on poverty was parallel to the civil rights. His better war. Yeah, his better war. And it was parallel to the, um, uh, the fight for civil rights, right? So across the country, communities could petition to have a community action agency and got direct funding from the federal government to identify the needs for people living with low incomes and what could be done, what kind of investments could be made. Often that was paired with a Head Start program. The and good old days when federal government actually cared about people. I cared about people, exactly. And so we, we still get a federal grant as of Reagan's presidency, and now presidency it now comes through the state. And the state, um, I give them a lot of credit because unlike most other states, they, they, have a, they also give us some money directly as a community action agency to help with our mission. So I really appreciate that, and that's new last uh, two years ago. Um, Anyway, uh, community action agencies don't look the same. Everywhere they look different because their boards are local boards. They have people who have been appointed by uh, low-income people or elected by low-income people. They have people who, um, who are appointed often by political uh, officials. That's part of the federal act. And then people with expertise in the community. So none of them look the same. The services look different. But the unifying thing is that we're all focused on how do we better meet the needs of people living with low incomes and give them chances for opportunity. We are talking with Executive Director Claire Higgins. She is the uh, Executive Director of Community Action of Pioneer Valley, just a critical agency that uh, is so important to keep our uh, community as a community. We'll be right back speak to Claire Moore. One that stands my suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Pie is like duct tape, it fixes everything. We must have pie, the great playwright David Mamet said. Stress cannot exist in the presence of a pie. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, you order a slice of pie, or you call and order a whole pie. I'll pick it up Saturday. They make cream pies at Paul and Elizabeth's and fruit pies, whatever's in season, peach pie in deep summer, apple in fall. Pie fixes everything. Therefore, Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant is a repair shop inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit HitchcockCenter.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And with the indefatigable Claire Higgins, the Executive Director of Community Action in Pioneer Valley. And we've been talking about housing, but I know your commitment as an early childhood educator, Claire Higgins, in the past, uh, to young children is legend. Uh, we know about it, and when we talk about housing, it's really difficult to not talk about the impact of the lack of adequate housing inventory and the sheltering needs on these young children who are our yeah. future. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I am fatigable. You are fatigable. Yeah, okay. I am are you fatigued fatigable. at this moment? Um, I am a little fatigued, but it's you know it's Friday. Would you like to take a nap before we go on? No, you have you have a, a, you're running a clock, so I'll I'll just keep going. Um, <laughs> I just you know I, I think about I was an early early childhood educator when I got engaged in, in thinking about housing because so many of our families were struggling to hold on to their housing. That's hard for families. You know what's really hard for is children. Children need stability in their lives because if the world doesn't feel safe, then you're not learning. You're, you're, you're dealing with the hierarchy of needs, and the first one is to make sure that, that even as a child, I want to make sure I'm fed. I want to make sure it's safe. I'm gonna, those, those things are critical to, to, for children's ability to, to grow and learn and then be the independent, smart, contributing people in the community that we want them to be. So when children are, are um, moving every couple of years or every year, Going to a different school system where people don't know them, going to uh, not having a stable group of friends or a stable group, a, a stable community. Now that's not, everybody's got some instability in their life. We, I moved as a kid. It, you know, 
well, some people might think it screwed me up, but I, I think I'm okay. Uh, but if you have repeated multiple moves, if you have, um, if you have uh, turnover in caregivers, if you, it, all those kinds of things are really not okay for kids. And if we, selfishly, I want, high, I want children who are caring and, and educated as a, when I'm an old lady, I want them to come visit me in the nursing home and be in, that, in good shape, right? I want to be, I want, we have an obligation to our kids and we have an obligation to create the world that they need. And that means the world that we need as we grow older will be the kind of world we want to live in. Well, stay with that topic, if you would, please, Claire Higgins. I remember one of your famous adages that you shared with us when you were mayor of Northampton, and you would say, I had fabulous training. I had fabulous experience that made me competent to be the mayor. I used to run a daycare center. And, and this was some truth to that. And I think there is some truth to that. And I'm wondering where you sit today, what you see as the potential for government actually doing the right thing by either the state government or the federal government by the communities that are in need, marginalized communities either by dint of economic status or otherwise? You know, it's a hard question because in our political system, you know, we, we ping pong back and forth. Uh, all, all the time from people who see a more expansive view of the role that government can take and a, a less expansive role that government can take. I do think there's, in general, um, well, I, I, I used to think, in general, there was a, a, a focus on children as a common interest for everyone. I think that's splintered at this point. Uh, so I think at the state and local level is where I can see the best work we can do to help people to do that. I'm, I'm a little... Uh, I, I'm a little despairing at the federal level. There was an article in uh, the New York Times, a David, I think it was David Ignatius, or somebody like that, who talked about the role of the federal government in, in capital investment for the things that we need as a, as a, as a country. And, ha and I think he's right about that. Like that kind of capital investment on common projects makes a difference. We're not there yet on the federal government. But I think at the state level, we have unanimity around, for instance, this bond bill. We, ha we have a state where paid sick leave was put in, paid family medical leave was put in. We have a, a state that is now investing a significant amount of money in early education and care, which it had, you know, it always had invested more than other states, but we're really at a different level now, which I think makes a big difference as well. I, I really think the housing is in Massachusetts is one of the key pieces because we have to give family stability. And because we have to have a place for people to live, we can attract the workforce, That's and correct. we do. But the, without places for people to live, we are not going to no. continue to be a wealthy commonwealth. I don't. I totally agree with that. And I think the governor's mission uh, to uh, appraise her for two things. The, the, uh, I, I think she's done a lot of things that I, I very much appreciate. The, uh, and one of two things that she's really focused on is one, this housing bond build, and the second is. Um, the uh, the two-year free community college for people over 25, which I think is a way to have people who are born and raised in the Commonwealth not be saddled with debt and think about what the next steps are in their lives and so that they can invest. And if, you, if you're a young person today coming out of higher education with significant debt and you want to buy a house, those things are in incompatible. If you can move one of the 
remove one of those barriers, which is the community college, that may be helpful on the other side if we're also doing work on the housing side. So it's putting together all these puzzle pieces and trying to think about how can we make them fit for all of us. And for community action, we, we see our mission as to help communities have people be able to grow, thrive, and, and in, in each of our communities. And that's very difficult with these particular barriers. That's a great place to leave it. Claire Higgins, we are so grateful that we have this monthly conversation with you. I, I love the, how you just shine a light on the problems and explain it so well, and then you shine a little light on a pathway out of the problem to a solution, and it is really important. The work of community action of Pioneer Valley, it never ends in, I don't know, you seem indefatigable, Claire Higgins. We're going to be right back. We're going to be discussing with Dr. Kate Atkinson, well, our medical uh, delivery system right after this. Because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. This and is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. South Hadley High School will be hiring a second assistant principal after voters approved funding at a special town meeting. The meeting was held after the school district lobbied for the funds following several altercations in the school this fall. The school committee voted to amend the budget and use $61,000 for the position from excess state aid. Rep. Natalie Blay is filing a bill that would allow police and firefighters to work in public safety roles until the age of 72. Currently, emergency service personnel cannot work past the age of 65 without filing a home rule petition. The act would not take effect until it has been adopted by a vote of the local city or town. Massachusetts legislators are considering a bill that would make Medicare for all a reality. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa filed the bill with Senator Jamie Eldridge, who testified in favor of the bill before the Joint Committee on Health Care Financing this week. Passing Medicare for All is the biggest action we can take to ensure that every person has great quality health care and dramatically improve the quality of life for all Massachusetts residents. The bill would establish a single-payer health care system funded by tax dollars and dramatically change the way that Massachusetts residents receive and pay for health care. It would effectively eliminate for-profit private health insurance companies, more, more comprehensively regulate nonprofit health care insurance and providers, and provide direct reimbursement to health care providers from the government. The Medicare for All bill would establish a Massachusetts health care trust with a 29-member board of trustees that would plan and oversee the transition to a single-payer health care system. Clouds on the increase today, but it'll be dry and mild, a high of 60 to 64. We're mostly cloudy tonight with showers developing mid to late evening, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Showers tomorrow morning, then partial afternoon sunshine, a high of 50 to 54. Sun cloud mix on Sunday and a high in the mid 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? 
Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, this is Mike Cherry, manager of Greenfield Savings Bank's newly renovated Northampton branch at 325A King Street. Please join us Monday, November 13th through Saturday, November 18th for a week-long celebration for our grand reopening. Our new lobby features newly designed teller stations and a state-of-the-art technology bar where customers can access their online or mobile banking, sign up for additional services and account benefits, and access financial education and fraud prevention information. There is also an area for children where they can play financial literacy games. Plus, we have specials on CDs, daily prize drawings, food, and more. Looking forward to seeing you there. Join the week-long reopening celebration of the newly renovated Greenfield Savings Bank Northampton branch at 325A King Street, November 13th through November 18th. No purchase necessary and GSB account not required to win daily drawings. Member FDIC, member DIF. Greenfieldsavings.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We keep hearing about the plight of the family practitioner. It's just a, a very difficult time to be a physician in a uh, practice that uh, makes a primary care uh, possible. The economics of it are really difficult. We keep talking about a more equitable health care system, Medicare for all System. Well, there is somebody uh, here, uh, Dr. Kate Atkinson and Adriana Piantadosi are with us today to talk about uh, a new model uh, that I, was reported by Emily Klein's article in the uh, Daily Hampshire Gazette uh, about a month ago. And Kate, I just want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And you too, Adriana. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. us. So, Kate, could you describe what this concierge system is that uh, was, well, described in this article? Well, concierge is really spreading across the country right now. A lot of people are interested in it. Um, but I want to be clear that we're not doing what a lot of other people are doing. Um, Atkinson Family Practice has thousands of patients. We are not kicking anybody out. We are not making anybody switch to concierge. Everybody who is currently our patient is going to stay our patient. Uh, what we are doing is offering an additional concierge program. I've hired a board-certified, very experienced, wonderful doctor who's just moved here from Tennessee, and she's just going to do a concierge. And she wants to have... This is Dr. Shane Taylor? Dr. Shane Taylor, yeah. Let me lay out a little bit what the problems are first before sure. we continue to look at... Uh, I'm interrupting you. I ask you a question. Fine. I interrupt. That's <laughs> what I do. No, but like uh, you shuffle through 16 to 20 patients a day. No, I see 20 to 28 patients a day. Okay. How many patients do you have? Um, thousands. I mean, our practice has about 8,000 patients. And uh, how much time can you spend with a patient in a given day? I mean, it, you know, one of the things is sometimes people need more time. So if someone needs more time... Um, then I'm late for my next appointment. Um, I average 15 minutes, and, and that's because often a quick ear infection or checking a blood pressure can be quick. Um, I like to spend more time with my elderly patients or diabetics or people who are going through a bad time. Um, I don't feel like I'm 
running from patient to patient most of the time, but I'm pretty exhausted at the end of the day. Um, most of my, the other providers who provide care in our office see 15 to 20 patients a day. Mostly it's because my patients insist on only seeing me and it gets hard for me to say no. In this article that I'm talking about, this Emily Klein article, skipping the line to primary care, uh, Valley Doctor, Tennessee physician, team up to offer concierge medicine. You say that you uh, literally, nurses in the hospital bring home more money than you do as a full-time family, doctor working 70 hours a week. Is that really true? Yeah, that really is true. Um, you know, at, at the risk of, I don't want to give numbers, but um, anything that you read nationally about average salaries for family doctors, I make half or less than half of what an average doctor does. Partly that's choices of mine. I want to provide good care to patients. I want to still take people who are on mass health. Um, we provide services that aren't necessarily compensated by insurance because we believe in them. So some of that is my fault. Um, but it feels like as hard as I work, I should be able to, like, you know, actually have the things that I'd like or have a nice long vacation occasionally, which has not been the case. I think so. Adriana Piantadosi, you are also involved in the system and also part of the solution by offering this concierge component. So um, tell us what you do and why you think this is important. Yeah, so I was brought, thank you, I was brought on um, to AFP to be the concierge coordinator. And so a lot of what I am doing right now is meeting with people who are interested in this model of care. And the thing that has been honestly not surprising, but it continues to be more and more validating, is hearing the common threads in stories of people feeling neglected and like they haven't had enough time for their health issues or that they've had to fight so hard to advocate for you know, a specialist or a referral and not feeling like they have the support that they need. And this is not due to any fault of any one specific doctor or provider. It's truly just that they're so overtaxed and they're so overscheduled. I mean, like one of the things that Dr. Kate and I have talked about a lot is thinking about like for any hour of time that you spend with a patient, you end up having to do another hour of documentation and fighting with insurances. And like I recently had a situation where I had uh, medication called in for myself, my doctor prescribed it, and then immediately my health insurance was like, well, we're not going to pay for it. We're going to require a prior authorization to confirm that your doctor says that you need this. And I'm like, <laughs> she called in the script today, so what is this back and forth? And so then I had to contact my doctor's office to then ask them to advocate for me. And then I also spent more time on the phone as well with my insurance companies. So it's this this constant struggle to just get the basic care that everybody deserves that is just like not reasonably available to people because people are so, doctors, providers, medical practitioners, excuse me, are so overburdened by the system that we're currently swimming in. Right. That, that, that your physician had to take time from his or her practice in order to explain this. So Dr. Kate, oh, by the way, uh, you said it's uh, Atkinson family practice when you said mm -hmm. AFP. Uh, Dr. Kate, the, the economics of this system, is it broken? Our system? Our system is truly broken, and I am a staunch advocate for Medicare for All. I probably have worked harder than any other doctor that you know who's working full-time to change the system. I'm active in the Massachusetts Medical Society. I'm on their board of treat trustees. I'm on their house of delegates. I'm involved in health care for all. Um, I go and testify at the state house. I've been meeting with legislators. And honestly, I feel like no one's listening. Um, there is this misperception that doctors are rich. And um, every time there's an issue, um, they don't really understand that we cannot, we cannot sustain this. And I don't want to leave. I do not want to give up the fight that I've 
been doing for 20 plus years to provide really great health care to patients. So how will this model, this concierge model that you're um, going to collaborate with Dr. Shane Taylor coming up from Tennessee and with your staff like Adriana, how, how is this going to work and how is it going to help? Well, frankly, it's bringing more money into our practice that can help cover some of the other expenses that aren't compensated. So I interrupted you before. Tell us how it will bring in more money. Describe the system. So uh, the concierge practice, people sign up for it and they pay an annual fee. Um, It starts at about $3,000 a year. We recognize that's a large amount of money and not everybody can do it. Um, And for that, we feel badly. On the other hand, because we're doing this, I'm able to continue to see all of the mass health patients we have in the practice because we lose significant amounts of money every time we see a mass health patient. Um, so it, you know, hopefully this will help cover, defray our high costs so that we can stay in business. Let's talk about why you lose money when you see a, a mass health patient or some other insurances. So in, who sets your rate of compensation when somebody is insured by mass health or another insurer? Um, not us. I, I am the only business that cannot set their own rates. So, you know, if I'm selling a burger and I have to pay staff $5 more an hour, I charge more for burgers. I can't. It doesn't matter what we charge. So we're actually bringing in less um, from insurance companies across the board than we did 10 years ago. Medicare has had cuts every year, and there's another big cut planned in January. Um, So MassHealth is set by the government, and they don't want to spend money. um, And so they keep cutting the amount. Most private practices don't accept MassHealth patients. I've never wanted to do that. I've always wanted to have an insurance model and not a she-she practice. Um, But in order to stay afloat, this is the solution we've come up with to have a she-she branch, the equivalent of getting on a plane, and there's first class and there's coach. And the people who pay more for first class are helping to cover those who are in coach. So I I just want to, I think I'm beating a dead horse, but maybe it's worth beating a little bit more. That is, that if, if somebody comes in and they need a particular procedure, mm-hmm. the insurance company has said, okay, if you, Dr. Atkinson, wish to uh, be compensated by us, you have to accept our rate that we're willing to pay exactly. for that procedure, not one that adequately compensates you for your time, the staff involvement, and everything else that you need to run that business. It's just what they say is the right amount. Is that, is that yes. the biggest, the biggest it problem? It doesn't matter what I charge. They give me what they give me. Not only that, um, often the insurance companies come back and take money back even years later. Um, Blue Cross just showed up and decided they'd paid me too much and took hundreds of thousands of dollars back. You know, I have no say. We are really small potatoes. Uh, Dr. Atkinson, I'd like to uh, have you tell us what is described in the Gazette article and you've described as a concierge practice. There are many different kinds of concierge practices across the nation. And this is actually uh, not a uh, high, high end kind of concierge practice by any stretch, not even close. Correct. It's a valley form. <laughs> okay. I got that. I would appreciate it if you would explain to our listeners what you mean in this context of your practice by concierge practice. And I'm not sure it's the greatest word, to be honest, but I do know it's been used, so I think you're kind of stuck with it. Uh, but what does a person get? I, let's say I, I were a, uh, uh, in, a patient in your practice. I can pay you $3,000 a year, um, and I'm going to get something quite special for that. What do I get? So you get a board-certified experienced doctor who is your doctor, you have advanced um, access to her. She'll have a cell phone number that you can text her um, 
early in the morning to the late evening um, to get information and access to her on weekends in a way that you really can't with the rest of us. Um, she is probably going to be seeing five or six patients a day. Um, I see 28 patients a day. Think about it. How am I going to stay on time? Um, she's going to be able to spend a lot more time with patients and be able to stay on time in the process. Um, she's not going to get to the point that I get to where sometimes I look at the patient and I cannot for the life of me remember what medicine I prescribed for them. Mm -hmm. I never thought that would happen. Um, but it can be a blur. And as much as I care very deeply about my patients, it is not the same level as if you limit to 300 patients. I mean, think about much more customized care and someone who can do the extra research. Um, so that's it. There's also and a And can kind of practice medicine the way you'd really like to, by the exactly. way. Exactly. Well, that's why she wanted to do it. Um, she was feeling burnt out, and so she suggested this to me. Um, and we had always talked about concierge if we had to, but I was reluctant. And then when we started to look at it, it just made sense. Um, and believe it or not, a lot of patients are really excited and interested in it. Well, here's a question that I have. If somebody can afford to pay the $3,000 for the concierge uh, care to be, mm -hmm. um, they probably have good health insurance, don't they? They do. Well, what's good? I mean, health insurance now is terrible. Uh, the private health insurance is most people have a $3,000, $4,000 a year deductible, which is terrible. Our system won't take care of that. People still need to pay their deductibles and co-pays. Um, as you may know, I've been actually taking time off work going to Boston and testifying about the problem with high deductibles because they keep people from going to the doctor. Um, but no, none of the insurances are very good anymore. Um, it's, it's really sad how often, you know, someone goes to the hospital and has a huge bill afterwards. Um, and Massachusetts is one of the worst. It, this is the reason we can't keep doctors in Massachusetts. I mean, it, it's really bad. Adriana Pian, how, how's this going to, Pian Dosi, sorry. Mm -hmm. how, how is this going to affect your practice, what you do um, at uh, Atkinson Family Practice? Well, I'm an administrator, and so I sort of, I'm happy to do whatever needs to get done to make sure that the practice runs smoothly and that our patients are getting the care that they need. So I see myself, you know, I'm doing a lot of coordinating tasks. I'm doing a lot of communication. I'm checking in about scheduling. So, I mean, I think the, I actually have it easier than a lot of the, our main front desk staff who, you know, are handling Dr. Kate's schedule, are handling all of our other providers' schedules in the main practice who, like Dr. Kate has mentioned, has are seeing, you know, between 15 and 28 patients in a day. Like, because I will be focusing on Dr. Taylor in the concierge branch, I will be able to have a slightly calmer workflow, which is really um, is really nice and and is not available to everybody just based on, you know, the, the amount of care that's required in this area. And I, I would like to say one more thing about the cost of the membership fee, which is that, like, yes, obviously this is helping to offset the costs, but the practice as a whole is accumulating with the constant battle against insurance. But also this is looking at, you know, if, for example, Dr. Kate sees between 1,000 or 2,000 patients a year, if Dr. Taylor is only seeing 300, like, yes, insurance doesn't pay enough to really compensate us, but we're also seeing, you know, between 700 plus fewer patients for Dr. Taylor, which means that we're still bringing in a lot less money. So this is also helping to sort of compensate for that as well. So it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's, you know, the price tag is something that might be a barrier to folks, but it is also making it possible for Dr. Taylor to provide the kind of care that she would like to. So Dr. Atkinson, here in the Valley, I expect you've gotten some pushback on this article in this play. Oh, yes. And I would like you to respond to it. What have you heard? What have been the criticisms? And I think 
largely unfounded, but you know, you hear that name, concierge, the rich get richer and better service and there's more inequality and less egalitarianism in the healthcare system. This is, anyway, what have you heard? Yeah, How do you I mean, respond? the biggest thing that I hear is it's not ethical um, and implying that I'm an unethical doctor, which hurts me to the core. Um, people have dug up an op-ed that was written to an AMA ethics journal that says concierge is not ethical. And they're posting it, making it look like the AMA is saying concierge is not ethical. It was just an op-ed. Um, the AMA actually has a statement that they believe that concierge done well um, can be very ethical, and they have a list of criteria, and we are meeting every single one of those, as you can imagine, because ethics does matter to me. Um, the other thing that you should really note as far as the ethics of it is even that op-ed article was looking at practices that we're seeing patients and then kicked everybody out and went to concierge. We're not doing that. We're not throwing anybody out. Um, we're adding something extra. Um, so it, it couldn't even be more different. And the frustrating thing for me is when people launch these attacks, I don't think they've even read any of the information. Um, they're just having a reaction. One of the other things I hear a lot is, how is this helping the healthcare situation? How is this improving access? And my first thought is, why is it my responsibility to fix the broken healthcare system? As a matter of fact, I have been trying really hard to fix the broken healthcare system to no avail. Um, this will fix our practice because it will keep us from going under. So I think, honestly, it will help um, while I'm waiting for hopefully our legislators to eventually see the light and figure out that if they don't do something to improve access to primary care, um, we're going to lose all medicine in this state. We're talking to Dr. Kate Atkinson. She works 70 hours a week. She has 25 years of experience, and she's earning less than some nurses earn at the hospital at a time when staff and medical supplies, the cost to her, and generally have increased 30 to 70%. Insurance companies keep offering less and less to the providers who are necessary to give us the health care that we need. We're going to talk about her solution, continue our conversation right after this. And once again... Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. My name is Jim Moran, owner of MJ Moran Mechanical Contractors. I am proud to support my community hospital through annual gifts and more recently by including Cooley Dickinson in my estate plans. Cooley Dickinson is always here for us and the people we love. A great way to leave a legacy is to include Cooley Dickinson in your will. Your legacy can transform health care for your community for future generations. CooleyDickinson.org slash plan giving. 
This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Crepes Tea House releases certificates for their Eastern European restaurant and tea house in Southwick, Massachusetts. Crepes Tea House, serving made-from-scratch cuisine with an old-world flair. Dozens of sweet and savory offerings for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, along with over 100 different types of teas to try. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Crepes Tea House in Southwick, Mass., available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, what they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Kate uh, Atkinson and with Adriana Piantadosi. We were talking about um, this new model um, to uh, help meet the needs of uh, what Dr. Atkinson refers to as a broken medical delivery system here in this country and in this region. And uh, Dr. Atkinson, we're talking about this concierge system we're going to have, uh, basically you're gonna have two different models that you're gonna be working within. One is what you currently have, which is the Atkinson family practice, and the other is gonna be the Atkinson concierge practice, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were saying, Adriana uh, uh, Piantadosi, you were, you were talking about um, services and the continued high quality medical services people are gonna be getting. Um, and yeah. that people might not understand by making this switch, it's not to the exclusion of serving people in the fine way that you currently do. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, on top of the, the greater access to Dr. Taylor, um, we there is a wellness package built into the membership. So you're looking at we're, – we're really excited. We have a health coach on staff who is really excited to be working with folks um, assessing stress management, anxiety. We have – I mean, one of the benefits of Atkinson Family Practice in general, but also specifically with concierge, is that we have a lot of really wonderful – providers on the on the team. We have a chiropractor, we have a physical therapist, we have um, behavioral, behavioral health providers. Um, so we have a range of services that we can provide in-house. And so there are a number of things that are built into the concierge package that will automatically include that, you know, where relevant. So we have a number of options depending on what your specific needs are. And that's, I think, another big thing about this. When I've been talking to people who are interested in this, um, a lot of it is just figuring out, like, what what would you like to be able to to discuss with your doctor if you weren't being rushed out the door for the next patient? You know, what what might be beneficial to you if your doctor had time to say, wait a minute, like, what if we could refer you to this service? We have somebody down the hall. Let's get you scheduled. Things like that. Um, and I do think AFP, the main part of the practice, does a really Atkinson good job. Atkinson Family Practice. Thank you. Atkinson Family Practice does a great job of doing some of those referrals already. But, you know, again, it's this thing of, like, if Dr. Kate only has 15 minutes to spare to see you, there are probably other longer conversations that could be had if somebody has more time to actually sit with you and assess what those needs are and help advocate for those referrals and things like that. So, Dr. Kate Atkinson, you were were earlier talking about what uh, other things you're going to be able to do in this concierge practice. So what other advantages for the patient? Well, the wellness program is a pretty exciting program. Um, Judy Grubenhoff 
our health coach is going to be um, doing a survey with patients to sitting down one-on-one and spending an hour and really reviewing what their goals for their health are and helping them figure out how they can meet their goals and what services we have in the office that they can use. Um, our chiropractor, Jason Potash, who's also a uh, certified health coach, um, wants to meet with people and look at risks for injuries or falls or sports um, safety and those types of things. We also have a full-time nurse who's going to be accessible. Yeah, so the, uh, we are hoping that this will, uh, it's going to take effect on January 1st. Yeah. We hope people can contact you at the Atkinson Family Practice and find at, out more about it. AtkinsonFamilyPractice.com slash concierge. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us this, today and this week. Have a great weekend. Thank, thank you. you. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. Pets and people. They belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org.